Hey gang, welcome back to the Let's Level Up podcast. I'm your host, Rick Perez. On the show, we have the Munchkin Czar himself, Mr. Andrew Hackard. Really excited about this episode. I hope you guys are as well. Um, really quickly, I uh, just want to say thank you so much for rating and reviewing the show on Stitcher Smart Radio and iTunes. If you haven't already, please do that. Follow us on all of our social media stuff. It's basically Let's Level Up everywhere. Um, you can hit us up on our website, letslevelup.net, for links. Uh, let's talk. How do you like the show? Hit me up on Twitter, at Let's Level Up. Without further ado, Mr. Andrew Hackard. Uh, well, Andrew, thanks. I mean, I appreciate your time and appreciate you joining us on the Let's Level Up podcast. Ricky, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. It's, uh, you know, you're, you're one of the first, dare I say, celebrities in the industry I met. And I, and, uh, I was a little intimidated with oh, you. First, dear God. Uh, I remember walking into Scott's house and you were, I think you were demoing 10,000 Goblins with Michael Abrahamson and uh-huh. uh, it just having a blast. And I was like, oh, okay. He's just like all the rest of us. I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> that, you know what? There's nothing else I'd rather be than a giant nerd. It it's it turned out to be a good life for me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I really want to talk about the genesis of gaming and how you got started. But is there anything uh, Steve Jackson wise or just Andrew Hackard wise that you've got going on right now that you'd like to share with the Let's Level Up audience? So... Uh, this is a really cool time. Uh, for those of your audience who don't know, I am the Munchkin Line Editor, uh, sometimes referred to as the Czar. And Lovingly. so we Loving, usually. <laughs> and we've got a lot of really cool Munchkin stuff going on. Um, as we're recording this, we're on the third day of a Kickstarter for three new small expansions. Um, that's going to end mid-April, so by the time this goes up, it may be over. But yeah, and those expansions were uh, Cthulhu zombies, and then there was a—I th- don't remember the Star third Munchkin. One. Star, Star Munchkin, Munchkin. That's right. I actually, have all three of those sets, and I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. And uh, we actually had a fan contest to help name those because Steve and I had some names, and we we're like, "Yeah, we're not totally sure if we're cool with these." And so we said, "Let's just open it to the fans." We've done that a few times, and so far, it's worked out almost every time and they just Cthulhu they came up with sanity check which is perfect love it um star munchkin is landing party which <laughs> gave me the perfect cover to, to send to our artist Larda Souza on these sets and zombies was grave mistakes which violates a rule at SJ games uh we're not supposed to call anything mistakes or errors Um, which goes all the way back to the very first printing of Munchkin 3 Clerical Errors, which had a huge printing mistake. (laughs) Oh, Um, so is it like a a, a knock on wood kind of thing? Yeah, don't talk about the Scottish play, that sort of thing. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, Clerical Errors, the first printing, they used the wrong file for the backs of one of the decks. So we didn't discover that because we had we had the decks printed and shipped to us and we assembled and didn't get the, to open one and check it. We didn't discover it until I took a couple of sets as prizes to a convention. And they opened oh, them no. up and came up and were like, why do all of these treasures have door backs? Um, so we ended up, we were going to just dumpster the bad decks. And so many people said, wait a minute, no, that's that's a collectible. We want one. <laughs> that we actually sold it as a set called Clerical Errata and made up rules for using those cards. Oh, that's awesome. Um, which is a which started 
a very long practice of if it is Munchkin and we can give it a rule, we're going to. Nice. Um, I mean, what so, you, what you all have done at Steve Jackson Games with Munchkin and, and everything else. I mean, it's just, it's it's a legendary establishment. I mean, Steve Jackson is at this point, and it's just we're, we're coming up on thirty nine years in business this year. I was going to ask you. Okay, wow, that's impressive. And how long have you been uh, with Steve Jackson? Um, it's a slightly complicated question. The short answer is nineteen years next month. Um, but I actually left for a few years in the middle there. Uh, because I discovered that I had debt and the game <laughs> industry for all that it is a wonderful place is not the most lucrative industry in the world. So I took a few years off to work at a job uh, designing textbook ancillaries, workbooks and answer keys and so on. Uh, and then my company folded because it turns out that's not a very lucrative business either. Um <laughs> And after a few months of freelancing, I was like, I missed the office. And I went back to Phil Reed, who was at that time the chief operating officer. And I was like, look, we've talked about me coming back a couple of times. I think I'm ready. And he said, okay, why don't you come to the office? We'll talk about what we can put you on. And I'm thinking, great. He knows I'm desperate. I'm going to get the absolute worst. No, they handed me Munchkin. (laughs) <laughs> they said Steve is so busy with everything else he doesn't have time to give this line the attention it needs why don't you do all of the boring work that Steve doesn't want to do anymore which was you know tracking sales and dealing with art and all that and let Steve write games and that lasted about two weeks and then Steve said I don't have time to write this one why don't you do it oh that's awesome and that, that's so, how you got into the design piece that's how I started designing Munchkin sets um I've been involved on some other things before. Steve and I had collaborated on a Shea Geek expansion, um, and I had been I'd been an editor for four years, working on almost entirely GURPS books. So Steve and I knew each other well. He knew what my talents were, which extended almost exclusively to terrible, terrible jokes. So Munchkin's <laughs> the perfect fit. I love terrible jokes, and my audience loves terrible jokes. So if you've got one, lay one out whenever you want. I will – don't give me that kind of permission. There, This will be a three-hour <laughs> chat that's just on. Oh, man, that's incredible. So, so what, what was the first set that you officially got to um, kind of uh, act as the Munchkins are, right, as, as that uh, designer? So we actually – when I when I came in, we had just published uh, Munchkin Booty 2, which is the pirate, pirate-themed set, and Munchkin Quest 2, which was our board game. Uh, I guess I should say our first board game with Munchkin. And we were starting to talk about doing the little foil expansions, um, which we were calling boosters, but we don't call them that anymore because people were getting very confused. And the thought was, we've got some ideas that are really cool that don't merit a full 56 or 112 card expansion, but we could do 15, 20, 30 cards easy. And we started talking about those. And at the same time, we were talking about doing a full line upgrade because the original Munchkin set for reasons of uh, entirely money was what's called duotone printing. It was basically two different shades of brown, uh, which had a sort of really cool sepia toned old parchment look to it. When we first published it, mm-hmm. at least that was our argument. Uh, it was, it was because it was cheaper. And by the time 2009, 2010 rolled around, it wasn't, 
really up to the standards of the rest of the industry. So we wanted to go back and recolor all of the art, do do it, relay out the sets. And that was an over the over one year project because I started updating rules. I was like, well as long as we're redoing stuff, I wanna, you know, knock some of the rough edges off, take care of some of the frequently asked questions that keep getting asked frequently. And it went from, okay, I'm going to do a few fixes and then we'll republish this to I'm rewriting a good chunk of the game. Um, <laughs> just looked at every single card. Most of, most of the cards were fine, but there were some where I was like, you know, this just isn't what this card says. Isn't really what it means. Or we've changed our mind about it over the years. Um, I also went through and redid the rules. Um, we went from four pages to six, so we could blow up the type size a little bit. Um, so yeah, at the end of that year, we started publishing new things. Um, I had input on the early mini expansions. And then Phil and Steve said, we want to do a Munchkin 8, because we'd gone up to seven in our expansions by then. And I said awesome when steve's gonna write it and they said steve isn't you are <laughs> um and i i had a moment and i said okay what's my deadline and they said can you have it next week and i said no and then they said we're joking they gave me plenty of time um that is in fact one that we threw to the fans to name because the key races in there were centaurs and lizard dudes i think we called them lizard guys in the final set and we couldn't come up with anything that we thought was funny enough, so we had a fan contest, and the winning submission was Half Horse Will Travel. <laughs> um, oh, so, man. yeah, we have fun with the game. Um, I actually, I don't, I don't tell many people this because it makes them look at me weird. I started with Steve in marketing. Uh, when he hired me in April of 2000, he hired me as his marketing writer. Turns out I suck at that. <laughs> uh, but by the time we we both admitted that I sucked at it I had been doing some editing for him and so he moved me over to that and that's what I did for four years so so yeah that was my gen I, I literally got in the back door in the game industry oh, that's awesome I mean that's really cool What? how many games of Munchkin do you think you've played you had a ballpark oh. it Ballpark it, a few hundred. Oh, really? I would, you know, I would expect it to be more than that. Well, I mean, there was a time when I was not working. You know, actually, I take that back. Now I think about all the playtesting I've done. It's, it's probably not at a thousand, but it's probably getting there. Um, because I've got to do, I do all the playtesting. I've run a bunch of demos at conventions and so on. Right. Yeah. Um, I will say I have a couple of regular groups and we don't play munchkin um <laughs> actually both of my regular groups are really into legacy games so if anybody's got a cool idea for a munchkin legacy i'd love to hear it i'm not smart enough to write it but i'd love to hear the idea you know i'm actually shocked that it doesn't already exist uh if i'm <laughs> just being honest it seems we like have... a perfect a perfect legacy game that hasn't been made yet it is if i can figure out the right way to write a legacy game that makes fun of all the other legacy games, loving fun, respectful fun. Right. Um, then I'll, I'm totally on board with that. 
um, but I mean, the problem is Munchkin players are very enamored of their sets. And if we walk in and say, okay, the first thing you do is rip up 10 cards, they're going to be really upset. Right. Yeah. Um, we tried, we talked about doing a Munchkin deck builder for a while. Uh, I wasn't smart enough to do that one either. So, how are things, how are things going with the, uh, the Munchkin CCG? And did you have much involvement with that? Um, at the very beginning, I was in several meetings with Eric and Kevin about that, and I quickly realized they knew a lot more about designing CCGs than I did because <laughs> I am I am that super rare game designer who has never played a game of Magic. Oh wow, that's that's impressive. Um, well, so when Magic first came out, I was a teacher with no disposable income, and I was watching my students drop hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars, on rare magic cards and i was like yeah i can't afford to get into this hobby because i have bills right um and i don't know how they got their money i'm sure you know odd jobs mowing lawns that sort of thing they were good kids but yeah it's i just never got into it by the time i actually had the money and the connections where i could have gotten into it there was so much history into the game I was like, I don't really feel like starting at the ground level as a brand new player and spending three years of my life learning to play the game to a competitive level where there's a lot of other games out there that I want to play. So it is nothing against Magic. It is a fantastic game and a huge success story. I've just never played it. Um, so, yeah. Event, um, so I was then supervising the line for a while, but that was during Munchkin's 15th anniversary. And we were doing a whole bunch of guest artist editions, a bunch of other special releases. I just got swamped, did not have the time. So we handed it off to an in-house team. And when Eric and Kevin turned over their final draft, um, that was that team was responsible for pushing the game across the finish line. Uh, I have actually played the CCG several times, uh, even, even drafted a few times. It is a really fun game. Um, it is... The market reception was not quite what we had hoped for, and we've got an entire new core set that is designed that we are figuring out what we're going to do with. Um, Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Right now, uh, right now, that is all I can say, unfortunately. Oh, no, that's that's more than enough. Um, it's really interesting. I, I bought a lot of the... Um, a lot of the first set, um, at least the, the the intro packs of each class and whatnot, and right. uh, unfortunately, I've only got at the table maybe once or twice, so I'm still a little muddled on the rules. Um, but it seemed like a really neat, uh, neat CCG. Um, it just... is. I love the fact that it is a CCG where you are throwing out items and spells and monsters, but there's a huge bluffing component. Yeah, and it's like okay maybe this is a monster I'm putting out here and maybe I'm trying to actually kill you. Maybe it's not a monster and I'm bluffing and I'm hoping you're going to waste your run away on my non monster card. <laughs> um, and it's just, um, yeah, I, I played a demo game against Eric Lang and, um, his favorite card is bumbles, which is a Panda. Uh, it's an adorable card. It is one of the more powerful monsters in the set because Eric really likes pandas. And three consecutive turns, I successfully guessed when he had brought out Bumbles and ran away from it. <laughs> he was so unhappy. 
like Panda uh, ESP. Um, Eric may have a tell. I'm just going to say that. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just giant grin ear to ear. Uh, but yeah, working with those guys was fantastic. Um, Eric is now over at CMON, and they just had a very successful Kickstarter for Munchkin Dungeon board game, mm-hmm. which will be out later this year, uh, featuring some really awesome miniatures of John Kavalik's monsters and a few that were are new to the game. Um, it is... A lot of people have said, does it play like Munchkin Quest? It does not play anything like Munchkin Quest. This is a very much its own game. Um, originally, they were going to try to do a Munchkin version of Arcadia Quest, and I said, well, you can't call it Munchkin Quest. That name's taken. And they finally said, you know what? Arcadia Quest is a great game with a lot of moving pieces. We can simplify. And they came out with a really cool, fun game that I think is probably under an hour for even three or four players. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and it's got the classic Munchkin feel of you're moving through the dungeon, you're trying to collect loot, you're fighting monsters. Um, and it's got a really cool new mechanic called shame. So don't, don't lose fights. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I'm the kind of player that if I'm going to, if I'm going to play a board game and it's a dungeon crawler, um, if it starts getting to the two, three, four hour range, I, I think to myself while I'm playing it, God, I can actually just be playing Dungeons and Dragons right now. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. And have a probably have a better time. That being said, I am a huge Gloomhaven nut though, and that could take some time. So that that is certainly a beast of a game. The thing that the thing that Munchkin Dungeon does is avoids one of the big problems of Munchkin Quest, which is. In Munchkin Quest, because of the way it's a tile-laying dungeon crawl, and you can end up literally across the dungeon from everybody else, so you're just sitting there waiting for your turn because there's nothing you can do because everybody else is on the other side of the dungeon. And in Munchkin Dungeon, you're always engaged because you always have the opportunity to screw with the other players. Oh, that's awesome. Which is which is the name of Munchkin. That's all, what it's right. all about. Yeah. Uh, um, that's really cool. The other, I mean, the other big thing is we just released Munchkin Warhammer 40,000. Uh, it is in stores this month and getting fantastic reviews from a lot of very kind people. Um, Games Workshop has been an absolute delight to work with on this project. John is over the moon because John has been a Warhammer player since I think he was an embryo. Um, <laughs> and I, he literally, when I told him we were we were signing this deal. He actually levitated. Um, so he's really excited. We've done it. We've got a couple of expansions coming out this summer, uh, a couple of accessories. We've got a dice pack with some more cards and we've got what we call a kilometer, which is our combat counter. Um, just a, a zero to 99 combat counter. That's got some more cards because Munchkin players love cards. Uh, and at gamma a couple of weeks ago, we announced that we are also doing Munchkin Warhammer Age of Sigmar later this year. Oh, that's and, so cool. I mean, I did not know a lot about Warhammer 40,000 before I started. Uh, I, so I had a crash course. And when I said the people at Games Workshop were really like to work with, one day I got this big package from Nottingham that was every 40,000 book that was in print. Oh, man. For the, yeah, all the source books for the 8th edition. I was like, okay, well, these are going home with me. They didn't. <laughs> they're, they're in the office. Um, so I, I mean, I literally just went through and read as much of it as I could 
to absorb the world background and do what I hope is a credible job of translating that the tabletop game to the Munchkin setting. I've playtested 40K with Munchkin fans. I've playtested it with Warhammer 40,000 players, and they're all like, oh, God, this is really fun. Uh, so Now, is that... I, is that out right now, or it is? It is on store shelves right now. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, the expansions will be out this summer, and then I was kind of like, you know, Warhammer Forty Thousand is great, but it's a very well established setting with a lot of you know, it's it's Imperium versus Chaos is what everybody's expects to see, and I pulled in some of the alien races, but it's Imperium versus Chaos. I said, Age of Sigmar is their fantasy setting, and everything I hear is it's already kind of Munchkin just on itself. So we went back to them and said, would you guys be interested? And they said, yes. Yes, absolutely. Let's please keep doing it. So then I got another big package with all of the Sigmar battle tomes. <laughs> That's great. And um, that set up, uh, we have... I think five pieces of art from John that are with Games Workshop for approval right now. They're the last five pieces for the for the game. Uh, all the card text, all the rule text is already in our production uh, office, so it should be going to print hopefully in the next month. Um, and then you know if they're they're happy with that, maybe there's expansions for that coming along too. But I've been I've been reading the books and going, this is just they clearly had a really good time writing these books. Yeah. Yeah. You could tell there's a lot of love there. Um, when you're, when you're designing a set of Munchkin, how, how much of it? Um, Cause I think, I think somebody that looks at Munchkin as a whole can think of the design process and maybe not give you enough credit when it comes to actually putting together a set. Um, how many unique cards and unique mechanics do you think you put in, uh, to every set. So let's take a basic Munchkin core game is 168 cards. We varied from that occasionally, uh, but ver but not, but usually 168. Uh -huh. And we've got a basic framework. We know we want about three dozen monsters. We want somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 character archetype cards. If that's classes and races or uh, in Warhammer, it's armies. Um, because that's what you play in Warhammer. Right. Um, we want certain number of you know, weapons, armor, helmets, boots, sorts of cards, uh, curses, or whatever the curse equivalent is for a specific game. Um, so there's a there's a skeleton there, but there's room to vary from that and, and play around with it. And Steve established that very early on. Right. Um, I mean, if you look at Star Munchkin, Original Munchkin, Munchkin Cthulhu, they are recognizably in the same family, but they all feel very different. Uh, and it's just a matter of what what flesh are you putting on the skeleton to carry the metaphor to its gross extreme. Um, <laughs> and in 40,000, I was I said, okay, um, I originally wanted to do class and race because it's a time-trusted thing that works really well, and they said, we don't want Orc Ultramarines in our game. And I said, that's fair. So then I switched to Armies, which ended up working out even better because it let me play. 
have a lot of fun with some jokes that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Um, like there's a there is a a card that is basically you you've been discharged where you lose your army. Um, there's a card where basically you're drafted, which means you're changing your army. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're just we just we had a lot of fun with that, and there's a lot of undead in both Warhammer Forty Thousand and Age of Sigmar. So we've been using our standard undead rules, but we also have a lot of chaos monsters because that's the whole point of the Warhammer universe. Mm-hmm. So um, if you're fighting a chaos monster and other people have chaos monsters, they can pile those on, which is a mechanic we've used a lot, but it works really well here. Um, and just, yeah, we're, we're having all kinds of fun taking taking munchkin rules we've used before and saying, how can we make it work in this new setting? Um, and, you know, they gave me a lot of latitude to break the fourth wall to tell some jokes that are the kinds of jokes that original munchkin poked fun at D&D players. Like, you know, uh, buy the GM a Coke, mm-hmm. uh, rewrite your character sheet, that sort of thing. Um, and... In Warhammer 40,000, there are things like buy a new shade of black, go up a level. <laughs> um, or one of the monster enhancers is proxied and makes the monster minus 10. And I put, I'll be honest, I put that in there because I was like, there is no way in hell Games Workshop is going to let me make a joke about proxying armies because they hate that. And they came back and they were like, we're so glad you put that in there. It has to be in there. It's fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and I went to John who said, there's no way they're going to, I said, they've already approved this. Go draw it. Um, <laughs> and it is working with John is fun because I have a very clear idea visually of what I want for most of the cards, but I don't always know how to translate that into the words that will get John to draw what I have in mind. And sometimes, sometimes what he draws is not what I was thinking. It's better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say a large majority of the time, actually. Uh, for Warhammer, John knows it so well that I was just saying, draw an ultramarine. And he'd come back with like five different perfectly good ultramarine drawings. Uh, and he said, do you need about ten more? Because I'm just sketching my army that I'm staring at right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to more fans getting getting a chance to play it, getting to see it. Um, we will be showing it off at our convention next weekend. I should, I can segue into that. Yeah. Um, we are hosting our very first SJ games convention first weekend of April, uh, called FnordCon because it, why wouldn't it be? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got two Munchkin tables that are running pretty much the whole time. Uh, I'm running one, not quite nonstop. And then the other one is going to be doing some other things. Uh, we'll be showing off Warhammer 40,000. We'll be showing off Munchkin Steampunk Girl Genius that was on Kickstarter last fall. Um, we're like, Phil Folio, uh, you illustrated Munchkin Steampunk. Do you want to do a Munchkin Steampunk Girl Genius? And I think if he could have flown to Austin to present us with the signed contract personally, he would have. <laughs> um so that's a really fun one. Uh, Steve and Phil worked on that one and had a great time putting that together. So I'm looking forward for people to see that because we haven't shipped it to anyone yet. 
Oh, cool. Um, where yeah, where is have, this located? I'm uh, assuming it's be in, in Austin. It'll be in Austin. Um, so our office in Austin is kind of tucked away in a hidden spot. We're across the street from a tortilla factory in a business park. Um, and it's not we, – we don't have the parking to hold a convention. We, we barely have the parking to hold an office. <laughs> right. So uh, we're actually going to have it at a place – across the highway from from our office that we've used for other events that's got a bunch of parking and some really big rooms that we're going to set up tables in and run a bunch of demos and have some open gaming and just have a great time. Uh, so it's on the southeast side of Austin, uh, oh, fairly close to the airport, not right on top of it. Okay, um, is there a, what, what's it cost for the public to get there or to get in? So, uh, we have actually sold out our advanced tickets. Oh, wow. Well, good for you. Yeah, it was unexpected, uh, especially for a first one. Uh, I think probably a bunch of the people who are going to be there are local or reasonably local. Um, and, you know, it is... It Keep an eye out because there's a slim possibility we could open up more tickets if we decide we have more space than we think. Uh, we're still doing, you know, putting together the final planning for who's going to be running what games where. Um, but as of right now, pre-orders are are tapped. Uh, but it's uh, it is forty bucks for the weekend. So two days of gaming, uh, including chance to sign up and get to play Ogre against Steve, <laughs> um, or try out the new Car War Sixth Edition prototypes. Uh, we're going to be running. I think the latest number is six tables of that four times a day. Um, and I can go on about Car Wars 6 Edition a lot because I love this new game. Um, it is it is still drive fast, shoot the other players, don't blow up, just uh -huh. like old Car Wars. But we've learned a lot from the design of the sort of tabletop miniature skirmish games that have been real popular the last few years. Right, yeah. Um, so people who have played, for instance, X-Wing are going to recognize that we have taken some inspiration from X-Wing, but it's still Car Wars. What you actually put on your car matters a lot, and how you choose to drive your car matters a lot. And it is not... We're not going the route of you have to buy the collectible X-Wing with the super upgraded Jedi Luke card in it. You, everybody's starting off in the base game with the same card and the same decks, and it's whoever builds the best and drives the best and shoots the best. That's awesome. And uh, we, have, we have done some stealth previews. Steve took it to a convention earlier this month, and so far... A couple people are like, you know, I really miss the spreadsheets, but everybody else is sort of like, this is, this is what I would really like to be able to say. This is Car Wars for my son, my daughter, my nephew, my niece. Get them into, here's what we used to play only, it was with much smaller little pieces of cardboard and spreadsheets, and it took us three hours to resolve six seconds of turn time, which... <laughs> If that's the game you want, that's fantastic. We published it and sold out the print run. We re we republished Car Wars and called it Car Wars Classic. And in fact, we just republished it again in the Pocket Box Kickstarter we just wrapped up. 
but this new edition is going to have really cool figures. Um, I am a Car Wars novice. I have played it a couple of times in the older editions. Um, I sat down for a demo, not quite cold, but pretty cold. And I had built my car in less than three minutes. And less than three minutes after that was taking my first turn. Oh, that's awesome. It is super intuitive. It's really quick and it's fun. And the possibility for expansions and scenarios, um, I want to say is boundless. It's just a matter of what we can, what we can come up with and publish and get people to buy. So is this going to be like a starter set that I could, that I could purchase? And if so, what's the MSRP there? Um, it's going to be, it is a four player starter set. It's everything you need for four players except the play mat. Okay. And we're starting off just saying, use a three by three play mat. That's your arena. Um, I don't know what the MSRP is going to be. I don't know that we have actually set it yet. We're still doing some print buying on on the game, but we know that we want to keep it within a price range. that's going to be affordable for most people. Okay. Yeah, that's great, man. Um, let's, let's, let's switch gears just a bit. If you're okay with it. Sure. Absolutely. I want to talk about young Andrew. Oh dear God. Young Andrew was a jerk. Uh, (laughs) Oh really? Well, what what did, uh, ask my sister, but yeah, I've got a couple sisters that probably say the same. Um, what are some of your first gaming memories and, uh, how did you, is there any point where you had that light bulb moment like a lot of gamers have where you just said, you know what, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I want I want to do this. So I was – I'll show my age. I was born in 1970, so I'm older than D&D, uh-huh. uh, older than Traveler, not quite older than some of the old old games like Nuclear War, but pretty close. And – Growing up, my parents were, my parents are very smart people, but just not nerds in the way that a lot of people today are. Um, saying that, uh, I grew up, one of the first card games I learned to play was Bridge, <laughs> because my parents were in a league, and it's like, well, I want to play that. I like cards, so I kind of jumped from War and Old Maid straight into Contract Bridge, Um I did not even really play Hearts and Spades until I got to college and was like, yeah, I don't feel like teaching you guys bridge. Let's do something a little easier. Um, but in 1980, the kid who lived across the street from me had one of the old pink box D&D basic sets. Awesome. And he was sitting out and I said, what, what you got there? And he said, I've got a game. And I looked at it and I said, this is a box full of notebook paper. That's homework. That's not a game. Games come in boxes with pieces and dice and spinners and, you know, life and sorry and Monopoly. I played a lot of Monopoly. Please forgive me, everyone I played Monopoly with. Um, So then a a few months after that, um, we had a babysitter come over because my parents wanted a date night. And it was one of my sister's friend's older brothers. And he brought over the D and D basic set was like, I thought you might like, you're, you're a smart kid with an imagination. I thought you might like to try this. So we start in module B2, uh, keep on the borderlands. And my first, I was playing solo 
first level magic user in basic with, I think I had two hit points. It wasn't just one. Uh-huh. I think I had two. And my sole armor was a dagger and a detect magic spell. Oh, no. <laughs> Not even magic missile. He let me take detect magic. Um, I think I died in the second room. Um, after I picked up the cursed sword. So I couldn't even use my dagger at that point. Um, <laughs> but I loved it. I had a fantastic time. And then the next summer, my best friend in, in fifth grade lived one street over. He was literally in my house on the next block. So either he was at my house or I was at his house basically every day the entire summer, unless one of us was traveling. And he'd been playing D&D for a while. Uh, he'd been playing a version of D&D that Munchkin players will recognize. Uh, his favorite character was a 432nd level fighter <laughs> uh, who had just sort of self-appointed himself a god that my character decided to worship. Um, it bore no resemblance to anything that Guy Gox and Arneson ever ran for their groups. But we had fun. And did that for a couple of years and then kind of got away from it for a while. Cause I got busier with school and I realized this is something I could be obsessive about if I let myself. Right. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really get back into D and D until college. Um, what I did do is though I had friends who were into board games. So played some of the old Avalon Hill stuff, uh, played, got into serious trouble one night by for playing Kingmaker until three in the morning. My mom had no idea where I was. <laughs> um, that's actually, that's not true. My mom knew me and therefore she knew exactly where I was. I just hadn't checked in. Okay. So three in the morning, my friend's phone rings. Fortunately, his parents were out of town and most parents would be like, Oh, he's over at his friend's place. His parents are out of town. He's getting wasted. No, I was playing Kingmaker. <laughs> and my mom knew me well enough to not be worried about anything. She's just like, just come home. Um, I remember playing really, it may have been second edition talisman. It may have been first, but the one with the little thin cardboard chips that if you sneezed, you had to reboot the game. Yeah. Yeah. Played a lot of that. Um, few other games here and there. Then I got to college and had friends who were into that sort of game, but I also got back into D and D and that was, at that point, was seriously hooked. That was right when Second Edition was coming out. So, we had really good times. Yeah, I loved I loved Second Edition. It was one of my favorite, probably is my favorite gaming memories. I was playing Second Edition D and D with my older brothers, and just you know, at a very young age, um, did some did some basic as well. Uh, but it wasn't really until Second Edition where I kind of fell in love with it. I always thought it was really cool. Um, but it's just, it's just a great game, and it, what's cool about it is that now I've got, you know, I've got a nine-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter, and they're both huge D and D dorks. That is that is awesome. And fifth edition is what I really wanted third edition to be. I agree. Yeah, third third edition is a really solid game, but they they went a little crunchy, and I played it a few times. And I was like, this is. This is not the game for me. This is too much bookkeeping. Um, I loved 4th edition because, I, I mean, I run Munchkin. I am a Munchkin. And, boy, did that appeal to the, the power gamer side of uh-huh. me. Um, 
But I know a lot of people didn't like it because they felt it was too far from the D&D they grew up playing, and I can respect that. Sure, yeah. Uh, but I'm in a 5th edition game now, and just we're having a blast. The biggest problem is that one of our guys drives down from Dallas, so we only get to play every two or three months. Oh, no, yeah. What's the, what's the commute like from Dallas to, to Austin? Is it an hour and a half? Well, oh, no. No traffic? No. He's on the south side of – he's in Waxahachie, which means nothing to people who aren't from Texas. Right. <laughs> so he's about 45 minutes south of Dallas. But we play in Kyle, which is another 20 minutes south of Austin. Oh, okay. So yeah. he's driving, depending on how much traffic he runs into, anywhere from three to four hours. But then he just stays the weekend at our friend's house. Um, if anybody is hiring in Austin, hit me up because this guy would really like to move here. Um, sorry, Plug. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, 2nd edition, reading through 1st edition, my freshman year of college, getting back into everything, because I'd I'd gotten out of D&D right before Unearthed Arcana came out. Mm -hmm. So I knew it existed, and I knew some of the stuff was in there, but I'd never read it until I got to college. Um, So rereading that and then reading 2nd edition, going, okay, I recognize this is the same game, but they've changed a lot of things and cleaned it up. And that was really my first experience with an addition change and going, Oh, you can redesign the game and it's still the same game, but it's better. Um, and you know, that is people, people can have arguments about, you know, is first better than second is second better than first is third better than first and second. Um, but for me, Second edition took everything I loved about first and knocked out almost all the stuff that I didn't. Yeah. And our group, I played it for the next four years of college way more than I probably should have. <laughs> uh, but again, we had fun. We had a really good time. Uh, and I was playing an Ome Illusionist Priest, so I was basically a walking spell battery. Um, I kind of missed those days. Yeah, so. you know, I, th- I think back to my when when the only thing I had to worry about was school and like when we were going to get the game the next session, uh, and you know, I it's it's nice it's it's nice to have those memories. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, if I could have a time machine, there's a lot I would do, but I think somewhere on the list, maybe top ten would be go back and just just enjoy that just for a little bit longer. I would really like to go back and there's a couple of gaming sessions sessions from college i would love to go back and relive no no see see my friends again the way they were back then not all of us old farts now um and just the pure enjoyment of spending the, the day together having fun telling a story sort of um being munchkins very much so and just having a great time yeah um on the other hand I love today because there are so many options out there. Yeah. Uh, It is, I mean, and you've got super, super crunchy systems. You've got super rules light systems. Uh, My hands down favorite RPG right now is fiasco. I love fiasco and has been for a while. And uh, our group, we've been trying, the D and D group has also been trying to have like every every month have a Saturday board game day and we have not been able to pull it together because we're all adults with lives, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But for a while I was doing a month, a monthly, I'm going to write a new fiasco play set and we're going to try it out. And 
some of those some of them did not work as well as I'd hoped, but some of them worked really scarily well. So I think I might pitch that as something that we do coming up this summer. Um, but there's just, I mean, you've got something like fate where what rules there are are basically to serve telling the story. Right. Um, you've got games now that are explicitly for kids like no, thank you evil. Mm-hmm. Um, which my, my, my DM is running for his kids who are 11, almost seven and two, the two year old, not so much, but the boys, are just are taken with it. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I mean, that's, that's on the role playing side. Plus you've got the OSR, which is the people who really miss the, the first edition games. There's new content coming out there for that. Um, it's, it's kind of like chip tunes, <laughs> you know, all of us old guys who grew up with Commodore 64 and Atari's and NES People are using that to make new music. Um, so I love it. This is, I don't think there's a better time to be a gamer than right now. Oh, I agree. Like, it's, it's just so much. If anything, there's too much because I have a problem uh, focusing. And, uh, you know, I look around my room, I'm surrounded by cardboard. Uh, you know, and I have, I have a, to, to somebody who's not in the industry, they look at my collection and they think I have the biggest board game collection in the world. When realistically, I've got 400 to 500 games, which is not a lot when you look at some of the huge collectors out there. I uh, I haven't counted lately on my collection. Um, I have actually, this is heresy, I've gotten rid of some games. A lot of people are I, doing that. But I got rid of them to friends who wanted them. So they're staying in the family, there just not at my house. <laughs> but, I mean, I am, I'm in a house where I can host a more or less weekly Thursday night game group. And we just wrapped up Ian's in legacy and we had a serious debate about, do I just bust out the reset pack and we start over right now? Or do we want to do something else and come back to it later when it's not quite as fresh? So let's, let's um, really, is, is that your favorite legacy game or do you have a legacy game? You're like, man, this is, this is amazing. Um, so I've played both seasons of pandemic first season twice second season once uh i'm in a risk legacy game right now uh i suck at risk it turns out and (laughs) risk legacy more so but i'm having a really good time um eons and legacy i like a lot um i really like the fact that when you finish the the legacy game the character that you have been building over the course of those games is playable in eons end itself oh that's cool um, and the choices that you that you make over the course of that game are reflected in this character that you can choose to keep playing in the actual full Eon's End game if you want to. Um, and the reset pack is not you're resetting the character you've already built. It's here's a new blank slate. Have fun building another character. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and that is that I think is really cool. Uh, Pandemic Legacy I love. I cannot wait to see what they're going to do in season three. I know they're working on it. Um, But at the end of those games, the game is spent and I'm in it for the experience for the campaign with my friends. So I don't mind that, but I love the fact that Ian's in legacy. They had an eye on let's do this. So it is playable 
when you finish the legacy part of the game. Um, did did a full six-player charter stone last year that took us several months because, again, took us, you know, we had to find the times to, to get together. And at the end of that game, you have a playable board game that your group has built together. And we were all just like, we really enjoyed this. Do we want to play this game? No, not really. <laughs> More likely, we're going to recharge it and start over from scratch. And I, I did my pandemic season ones with two different groups, and I was the only overlap. So I was sitting there watching them make choices that I knew. I was like, oh, this is this looks good right now, but later that's going to bite us hard. What do I do? And I was like, I can't say anything. Yeah, you can't spoil it. Yeah. I can't spoil it. And at one point, all three of the other guys looked at me and were like, you knew this was coming. And I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, why didn't you? I said, would you have wanted to know it was coming honestly? And they're like, no, no, you're right. Um, there are a couple of, of things at Eons and Legacy. So the group that I play, played that with, we had played Eons End a bunch. So we knew the game. And it was actually hard for us to start to roll it back because you don't start with the full rule set. But there were a couple of things that I had got ended up getting spoiled on that I very intentionally did not say anything to or hint at. And one of the guys in the group, uh, Mike, who we talked about earlier, had not played a legacy game before. So he was just like, oh, I get to put stickers on the cards and I get to do this and do that. And I hit this one point in the game where something really cool happens, and it was like Christmas at the other end of the table. Oh, that's so cool. She's like, oh, my God, I never would have even imagined that would have happened. That's awesome. And I will say no more. Um, so our D&D group is also just starting Betrayal Legacy because we've been playing a lot of regular of base Betrayal and, and Baldur's Gate. Uh-huh. So I love both this came, of those games. Yeah. So when this came out, we're like, we're gonna we're gonna pick up Betrayal Legacy and get it going, and we are two games in to the I think it's thirteen game sequence. Awesome. So no spoilers from your listeners, please. Yeah, uh, I've actually just took the shrink off of my Betrayal Legacy. Um, it's weird. I I don't know if you do this or not, but I I make up reality sometimes, and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. But I am a thousand percent confident my wife and i have played betrayal more than once and so i'm like hey i got betrayal legacy you ready to give it a go she's like well i haven't even played the normal betrayal yet I'm like, oh yeah we, we did yeah we played that a bunch of times she's like no ricky i haven't I'm like are you sure uh so you i got played it. it with someone but it wasn't with me and we're gonna have a talk about this later. right yeah and yeah. then there's like oh god did you turn the heat on i'm sweating right now this is weird. <laughs> uh, so you know it is I'm very fortunate that, one, legacy games appeal to my... I mean, at, the, at their core, they're transgressive. You're doing things to board games that you've been told you should never do to board games. Sure, yeah. Permanently marking them up, permanently sticking things, tearing up cards. Um, and that was... I mean, Risk Legacy, the very first thing you do is everybody signs the board. The, very, the second thing you do is everybody chooses a faction in the game and puts a sticker on it saying, here's that faction's power. And the third thing you do is you take the card that has the faction powers on it and you tear it up because you can't ever have those powers. <laughs> that was a, that is like throwing into the deep end, full immersion legacy gaming. Um, 
And I love that it was the very first one on the market. Um, and I had, uh, I got to sit and have a, a decently long chat with Rob Davio last summer at Tabletop Network, the sort of tabletop GDC, um, and picked his brain about legacy gaming. And he's he said this before. They were having a meeting at Hasbro about Risk and said, you know, we've we've pretty much done everything we can do with Risk. We've changed up win conditions. We've changed up rules. I said, you know, what other things are there? You know, what are the hard and fast rules of a Risk game? And somebody in the group said, at the end of the game, you pack it up, and when you open it up again, you start fresh. And Rob said, what if you don't? And they went, what do you mean? He said, what if what you do in one game changes it? And the next game is affected by those decisions. And they were like, it would never work. No one would ever buy it. (laughs) And he proved them wrong. Um, And I mean, I I assume you have played regular Pandemic. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Have Have you played Legacy? I have played Legacy. Yeah. My wife and I are on March right now. Okay. Of season one or two? Season one. I've got, I got season two in the shrink. Okay. So, I will not spoil for you. Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is very recognizable pandemic that you're playing. Um, Season 2 is a pandemic-style game, but it is very different. Mm -hmm. And I love that they can take this idea of, we've got this game, this very successful game that we've been publishing and do a legacy version and then do another legacy version that is still recognizably that game, but almost completely on its head. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about it because there are so many delightful features in season two that I don't want to even hint at spoiling them. Oh, cool. That's awesome, man. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to hint at spoiling season one either, except to say you're in for a journey. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we thought we were we were doing really well in uh, month one when we won our intro game, and just I was like, oh, we got this. This is this is gonna be cake, and then got our teeth kicked in in February. That is the I mean that's the way pandemic goes anyway, right? And the thing that I love about Legacy that Rob and Matt did was the balancing mechanic of if it, if you start doing too well, the game is actually getting harder. Mm-hmm. And you're going to reach a point where you're like, there is literally no way we can win this game. And it backs off a little bit. And you're like, okay, we lose a couple. The game starts getting easier. So it adjusts to how you've been doing. Um, season two is a very challenging game. Um, they put in a prelude game that is not a legacy at all. It's just play. This is pandemic season two. Play it. I encourage you to play it until you've won it three or four times. Oh, okay. Um, and it's probably going to take you five or six tries to do that because it is a tough, tough game. Um, and then the legacy starts and it gets even harder. <laughs> oh, well, that's awesome, buddy. Uh, Andrew, I, I just wanted to say this, man. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been I've been grinning ear to ear listening to your stories uh, this this whole episode. So I hope the audience enjoys it as well. I hope so too. I've had a fantastic time. Um, where are we going to see you next? Are you coming to Austin anytime soon? You know, I was just there uh, this last weekend with the family. We went to the to the Austin Aquarium. That was awesome. Uh, yeah. I was I was a little worried when we pulled up 
and I was expecting more of a normal aquarium, and then I pulled up to like a, an old Big Lots building, and yeah. and uh, when once you walk in there, it's like, oh no, this is this is legit. Everything's interactive. There's uh, the animals are all very friendly, and they seem to be well taken care of, and uh, kids had an amazing time. And then we went to the uh, Hill Country, and went to Science Mill, and uh, that was a, a, a blast as well. Literally, um, a lot Did of you fun get blue- there. Did you get blue bonnet pictures? I did not get blue bonnet pictures. I tried to a couple times, but my wife didn't want me pulling over. Uh, Fair. Yeah, it's. I don't know how it is out where you are. It is a fantastic year for them here. Yeah, it's. It is uh, just mesquite and cactus where I'm at right now. Well, <laughs> uh, everybody who is not in Central Texas is going. What are they talking about? What are Texas has wildflowers that crop up every spring, and if you have a really wet winter. You're going to have a bumper crop of wildflowers just grow on the sides of the roads. I've got blue bonnets in my front yard. I didn't know that. Oh, that's awesome. And I just went out and looked. I was like, oh, I've got blue bonnets there. I had mowers out today, and they mowed around them. <laughs> um, yeah. So it is – if you ever get a chance to visit Texas in the spring, just take a drive out into the country at some point, and it, you'll be amazed. It is beautiful. Yeah, it's great. I mean, we're going to be back in Austin here before too long. We had an amazing time. Uh and yeah, we'll be back there for sure for Criticon uh, this so, year. Yep. So I'll so, see you there. Well, um, you should probably just camp out in Austin in the month of August because we've got Criticon, we've got Board Game Bash, which is a wonderful board gaming weekend. Um, plenty of other stuff going on, I'm sure, at some point. Yeah, I love gaming. So I'll, I'll go if there's an invite for sure. So, uh, yeah, and it's only it's it's an easy drive. I mean, you, you take 87 all the way, basically. Uh, you jump on 71 for a bit, but uh, it's almost a straight shot. See, that's perfect. Yeah. Only thing more perfect would be if you actually lived here. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was We had such a good time this last weekend. It was one of those things like, you know what? Maybe we should consider. Uh, I don't want to worry about selling the house. That's like a whole other thing. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> I I love I love Austin. I lived in Round Rock, north of Austin, for a few years, and then I'm I just moved back to South Austin a couple of years ago. My parents were thrilled because they're in San Antonio, so I literally halved the time it takes them to get to my place. Nice. Um. So yeah, we're we we see each other pretty often. The next few weeks, we're not going to see each other at all because they're traveling, or I'm traveling, or I have guests, but or I have Nordcon which will be April 6th and 7th at the, at the site. Pre, pre-orders are sold out, but maybe back, maybe we'll sell tickets at the door. We haven't figured that out yet. Oh, man, that's so. cool. Well, good luck with the convention, man. I hope that's going to be a, a huge hit for you. And good luck with the Kickstarter that's out right now. Um, I appreciate it. And, you know, Warhammer 40,000, Warhammer Age of Sigmar. Uh, we've got some other Munchkin stuff coming up this year that I can't even talk about yet. Um. And yeah, some really, some really cool stuff that's on the horizon. Some really cool non-Munchkin stuff. I haven't even talked about the fantasy trip yet. Oh, oh my God, what Steve's fantasy fire. trip? Okay, so Steve Jackson, owner president of Steve Jackson Games, actually got his start in the game industry in 1977. Um, first game he wrote was Ogre, which is you know big cyber tank combat that we are currently still publishing in really cool big editions. But then he worked on a role-playing game called The Fantasy Trip. And when he left that company to form Steve Jackson Games, 
he tried to buy the rights and the owner wouldn't sell. Is that when GURPS became a thing? So a few years later, GURPS became a thing. Okay. And GURPS is sort of, GURPS is kind of the fantasy trip fourth edition in the D&D paradigm. Um, it's recognizable that there's some shared, you know, shared ideas there, but it's a different game. But Steve's been trying to get the fantasy trip back pretty much ever since he founded SJ Games. And the guy wouldn't sell, and the guy wouldn't sell, and the guy was willing to sell, but wanted way too much money for it. And Steve just finally said, okay, I guess I have to write this off. Well, it turns out there is a provision in U.S. copyright law that if you are, if you can prove you're the creator of a property that is owned by someone else and they have not done anything with it for a period of time, I think it's 35 years, you can file to recover that copyright against the interest of the copyright holder. Oh, that's awesome. So Steve went to his very expensive lawyers and said, I want to make this happen. And they actually tracked down the guy who owned the copyright and he said, I don't want to sell. And they said, we're serving these papers. <laughs> and a few months later, uh, Steve got a ruling in his favor and he was awarded the copyright to his first role-playing game. Wow. Which... Uh, we've put on Kickstarter and are have republished that it is in fact shipping to backers right now. Um, and it was, it started off as a skirmish game. It wasn't even really an RPG. Um, there was, the first one was melee, which was literally you're on, you're on a, a hex map and your fighters are fighting your opponent's fighters. And then there was wizard that added spells. And then the, the fantasy trip role-playing came into it where you could actually start doing you know build an adventuring party and you've got a game master running through adventures using this very simple rule system so uh it's it's been really fun watching a whole lot of longtime gamers go giddy like teenagers <laughs> because this game that they played when they were kids is finally back and they can finally play it with their kids and grandkids and um, it is, it's kind of like when we did the ogre designers edition, the, the Kickstarter we had seven years ago now, and it was sort of, this is the, if we'd had the money, this is what Steve would have published when he first got ogre. That's kind of what we're doing with fantasy trip. And the reaction has been stunning. And so we've got support products coming out. We're working on some monster books. We're working on some other stuff I can't even talk about yet. Uh, oh, that's cool, man. So is that uh, you said it's going to backers now? It, is that going to be going to uh, FLGSs as well? Can you pick that up on store shelves if those so, ones missed the Kickstarter? Um, I think there are. I think it's going into distribution. I'm not 100 percent sure. I know that there are retailers who back the Kickstarter. Okay. Um, and again, a lot of these were longtime stores that either had played it or remembered it from when they were players. And so they were like, yeah, we're going to get some copies and put it on the shelf. And we've got our, our men in black are out running demos of it. And it's really cool to see this game just totally resurrected for a new generation. Um, we went into, the, there was a little bit of cleanup we did. Um, things that Steve was like, yeah, if I'd known 40 years ago what I know now, I would have written that rule differently. We're like, well, we can do that. So it is, we're sell, we've got, 
we got everything from a pocket box that is just Melee Wizard to the Legacy Edition, which is kind of the big box that has everything in it that Steve created for the game back way back when, plus some new stuff. And then we did what we call an I Want It All Edition, which is even bigger. <laughs> and, you know, has a companion that's got new content written for the game, the first new content in 35 years. Um, it's got some extra goodies. It's got more dice because you need more dice. It just, it's, it's wonderful. And I love seeing Steve actually be able to go back and publish this game. That was a part of his history and part his growing up and leveling up as a game designer. Oh, that's incredible. What a story, man. Yeah. He could have been a lawyer and he took a, took a better path. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, that guy could have made money. Yeah, you know, if he if he would have just sold it initially, and now he didn't make a dime, that's a lesson. Yeah. That's a lesson for 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 the jerks out there. Well, uh, it the is right <laughs> the way Steve described it was he reached a point where he didn't want anybody to be in a position where they could tell him no, so he started his own company. Yeah, uh, it's not it's not quite that simple, but it's pretty darn close. Um, yeah, it is. Steve has the way that the, the his former boss was controlling and sometimes spiteful. Steve has really tried to give a leg up to other people. The, if you look at the roster of people who have worked at SJ Games over the years and have gone on to other things, I mean, mm-hmm. it is... There have been a lot of rock stars that have been involved with the company at one point or another. And a lot of those people are ones that came to work for Steve for a while and then wanted to go off and do their own thing. And Steve's like, you know what? If you can be successful, more power to you. Good luck. When I left the company in 2004, not even to stay in gaming, to go off and do something else, Steve said, you know what? The door's open. Come back for playtesting if you want to do some freelance work, and they will let you do it. We'll be happy to do it. You know, this bridge is not in any way burned. That's a rare thing, man. So, now, there are people who have burned bridges, but that's their choice. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is he, is... he has been in business for himself for almost 40 years. Uh, it is... I think it is the second oldest continually running single owner game company the only other one i know of is uh flying buffalo that does tunnels and trolls and nuclear war and a few other things mm-hmm. um and that's i mean rick loomis has been running that company for over 40 or sorry over 50 years so but yeah there are a lot of companies have come and gone in the time that steve jackson games has been in business so it is there's there's there is a, a weight of history that I think a lot of people there consciously or not keep in mind and, and respect. And you know, this is we are part of something much bigger. The the game industry as a whole, but Steve Jackson Games has a part in it. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean it's just it's a legendary name, you know. I mean, it's yeah. You look at it. I'm, I'm a small town kid. At the end of the day, uh, you know, basically raised in San Angelo, and 
you see these, I see these games on my on, on the game shelf, the, the one game store that we had, you know, 25 years ago. I see SJ games on the shelf, and I, I grew up with it, and it's just, it's cool yeah, to, to know that um, not only is it still going, but it's thriving. Um, well, and, and, and to hear a win like that story you shared with, with uh, Fantasy Trip is, is huge. And it was, it, it really was, and... I mean, it took it took a lot of patience and a fair amount of money because it was not cheap. But he said it's worth it because he's finally got it back. It was the one the one thing that really got away from him that chafed for all those years. And the way the way that it happened, I think, hurt him more than anything else was just, no, I'm not even going to. You're willing to pay money for those rights and I'm not going to quote you a fair price. So, yeah, as you said, let that be a lesson. There you go. You as Will Wheaton says, don't be a dick. Yeah, do the right thing, kids. Do the right thing. I apologize thing. for losing you your clean tag on this episode. No. <laughs> it's okay. I have uh, uh, 10 minutes of just white noise F-bombs at the end of every episode, so you're good. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, your kids uh, are so proud, I'm yeah, sure. I, I know. Uh, they just so embarrassed the dad. Um let me, let me ask you this. We, we like to end every episode uh, when we have a guest with with the guest giving some parting words of wisdom. So, Andrew, is there anything um, that you'd like to just, through your travels, through all of your journeys that you've learned um, that you think the LLU audience could uh, to benefit from hearing? Yeah. Gaming is meant to be fun. If you're not having fun, do something else. And that, that could mean play a different game. That could mean play the same game with different people. That could mean get a different hobby. Um, over the past few years, there's been an awful lot of hostility and hate and terrible, terrible things said and done to and by people in the gaming industry and the fan community. And I think a lot of people are losing sight of the fact that at the end of the day, we're writing games and we are playing games and if it's not fun, what are we doing? So I tell, I talk to people who are like, you know what? I played Dungeon and I don't really like it. And I'm like, you know what? That's fantastic. You tried it. You didn't like it. There's hundreds of, sorry, thousands of other games out there. <laughs> Go find one that you love. The way that these people over here are love playing Munchkin. So they're not wrong. You're not wrong. Everybody loves different things. Go out and have a good time. And it's just, you know, it's so easy to find something that you enjoy doing in this hobby. I don't know why people are going to focus on the stuff that they hate. I, man, I'm so glad you said that because it's something that just it just drives me up the wall. There's so much there's so much negativity online, and there's such a – I talked about it a bit before in the last episode. There's a crazy mob mentality out there that just is – to me so toxic and so damning in our space and it's sad uh, because at the end of the day all i want to do is roll some dice and push some cardboard and have some laughs and uh and i don't i don't want what i'm saying to excuse the fact that there are some bad actors out there for sure for sure and i the fact that some of them are coming to light and people are talking about them i think is also all to the good but i don't want them to be seen as representative of the hobby either 100 percent um, and you know what? 
There are people out there who hate D&D. Great. Don't play D&D. There are people out there who hate Munchkin. Great. Don't play Munchkin. You probably, there are a couple of extraordinarily popular games that I will not name that I will not play and have walked away from game tables where people suggested playing those. But you know what? Those people have fun playing them, and that's fantastic. I'll go play something else. And Indeed. that's the way it needs to be. Indeed. Find what you love. Find what you love, and don't let anybody make you feel bad for loving it. Assuming well, I mean, it's legal. There's a couple, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... No, it is... We're getting we're getting to the stage where the hobby is big enough that we're starting to see the factioning and the, you know, well, I'm not that kind of gamer. And I think we need to remember at the end of the day, we're still a very small hobby as compared to NASCAR and football and baseball mm-hmm. and, you know, cricket. And we've got a lot more in common than we have that divides us. Beautifully said, sir. So, and it is, I mean, I've been in in this industry as a professional for 19 years, and I was a fan for 20 years before that. So, so I'm old, first of all, but, but also I've seen, I've seen it from every side and we all have so much to offer each other. And the thing that I love more than anything else is I go to a convention and somebody I don't know that I've never seen before is like, hey, I've got this new game. You want to sit down and try it out? And you know what? Maybe the person and I don't get along. Maybe the game sucks from my perspective. Um, but the times where not only have I found a new game that I love, but I've made a new friend vastly outnumber those. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, I'm in one of those occurrences. Uh, Absolutely. When we played a Criticon. I remember showing you my, my copy of Outer Gods, and uh, you're like, ah, I don't really like social deduction games. Uh, but you played it anyways. I think you had a great time playing it. I had a fantastic time. Yeah. Um, I, I really would like to see that on shelves. Yeah, I'm working on it, man. It's been a, it's been a rough eight months, but we're getting we're getting back to the swing of things. It is... Right now, it is. We're now like five minutes past your closing question, but that's okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is simultaneously easier and harder than it has ever been for new game designers to get published, and right. because it's easier because there are so many self-publishing options. There's Kickstarter. There's Indiegogo. There's just write a check to Game Crafter and have them print stuff, or one of the other companies that do the same sorts of things that game crafter does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's, there's Kickstarter, which has thousands of games a year. There's Indiegogo, which has all the games that aren't already on Kickstarter. And there's people just self publishing. It is some of your listeners probably are not old enough to remember the D 20 glut in 2000, 2001, 2002, when all of a sudden anybody who wanted to could write a D and D supplement and after about the 10th book of dragons, I was like, you know what? I love dragons, but I'm done. (laughs) Um, and it's kind of that sort of thing is the barrier to entry is suddenly a whole lot lower. Mm -hmm. And 
it's fantastic because there are some really good games that are getting published that never would have been published through a traditional publishing route because they're just, they were too risky and a company wouldn't be willing to take the chance. But at the same time, there's some really good games that aren't getting published because they're just not able to get noticed. Right. And it is, I tell people who try to put things on Kickstarter, I said, if it's not going well, don't be afraid to say, you know what? This isn't going the way I want. I'm going to cancel this. I'm going to retool. I'm going to rethink it. And we're going to come back in six months and try it again. Because by then you, you know, right now you might be competing with 10 heavy hitters six months from now. Maybe they're all between their campaigns and you're just going to hit it right at the right time Mm -hmm. and get noticed by the right people. And all of a sudden your game's going to blow up. So it is, you know, and it is self-publishing in every industry, musicians able to reach their fans through Bandcamp and SoundCloud and you know, just getting on Spotify and Pandora directly instead of going through labels, um, people self-publishing through Kindle through Publishing and Amazon CreateSpace and Lulu. The, the traditional gatekeepers are not nearly obstacle they used to be. Um, you might say that I believe that walls don't work, but we probably shouldn't go there. Um, (laughs) and it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful time for people who respect and love creativity. And at the same time, it is so hard for any one person to break out or any one company to break out and get noticed. And plenty of them do, but it's kind of the, you know, if you've got a thousand people trying to get out and 2% of them do, that's 20 companies that weren't there a year earlier. And whereas maybe five of those games would have gotten published, but maybe five of the games that weren't getting noticed would also have gotten published. And, you know, is it better to have 20 than 10? Not if you're in the five that would have gotten noticed, but didn't. Sure. Um, but it's also, it, I mean, it can be very discouraging to be a game designer who just can't quite figure out how to hit the market. And a lot of traditional publishers, games right now, we are not really looking at outside game submissions because we're just like, we've got our own things that we're working on. It's not that we don't want outside games. We have published a number of outside games that have done very well. But right now, we're trying to be careful. Um, and... You know, that I could go to Criticon or Gen Con or Origins and somebody's got a prototype that absolutely knocks me over and that could change. We could buy that game and publish it for them. But I would be willing to bet that they would get it published faster if they did it themselves. So it's kind of the trade-off is do you want to wait on the chance that a big publisher is willing to pick it up or do you want to go ahead and try to get it out there and maybe you're one of the lucky 2%. And I have no advice to offer on how to make you one of the lucky 2%, except make sure your game is the very damn best game that you could create. Yeah, and I also say, just to add on to that, not only does it need to be the best game you can create, but you've got to have you got to have a little bit of grit as well. Um, because it's 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 hard. Uh, when the Outer Gods Kickstarter, you know, when we, we realized that wasn't going to go through... It was a bit of a tough pill to swallow because all the feedback we had gotten at that point was just so positive. And uh, 
looking back at the campaign and the way that we were marketing it, I could tell like we had there's a lot of lessons learned from there. Um, so you got to pick yourself yeah. up, dust yourself off, and then get back on the horse. You really do, and I don't. I run the risk of being a little hypocritical here because I work for a largest, large-ish established publisher that is doing a lot of Kickstarter work now, and I feel like some of those companies are starting to choke out the market a little bit, kind of like a lot of companies choked out the D20 market in about, say, 2003-2004. But there were a lot of people who came up in the game industry in that time who were still active. They may not be doing D&D, they may not be doing role-playing, but they're still around. And I think it's one of those things where don't look at this as the big companies with the multi-million dollar Kickstarters are choking out everybody else to make it impossible to get published. It just makes it a little more challenging, but it also is pulling attention to those platforms that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Sure, yeah, definitely. So it is, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. And I know one of the things that we try to do at SJ Games is as often as we can point to other Kickstarters and go, here's a cool Kickstarter that we're backing because we think this is awesome and you should go take a look. And that, I mean, I consider that kind of as part of our obligation as one of the larger publishers is let's give a hand to the next generation. Let's help them up the way that some of us were helped out when we were just getting started. Yeah, that's incredible, man. Absolutely. So, so yeah. And I will tell you that I personally have backed, uh, I'm coming up close to 300 Kickstarter campaigns. So, yeah, uh, I pay attention to Kickstarter. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, Andrew, man, thank you so much again for the time. man. I Ricky, I really it. appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing you as soon as possible. You should come to Chupacabra Con first weekend of May in Round Rock. I think I could do that. Yeah, is that, so, is, that a, is that a ticketed event? Um, um, I guess I can Google it, it huh? It, you, you can Google it. I think it is ticketed, but I think there's still – you can like just walk and be like, hey, I need a badge. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, that is – and that's more of a general interest. We got role players. We got board games. Um, I go up there because I have a bunch of friends who come into town for that you wouldn't necessarily expect to come just for a regional Texas convention, and we just have a blast hanging out. So awesome, man! Well, I'll likely see you then. So all right. Well, I look forward to it. Anytime you come over, hit me up. We'll go, you know, get some Tex Mex and shoot the breeze for an hour or two. Love it, buddy. Thank you so much, Andrew. Ricky, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Well, gang, that's the whole show with Andrew Hacker. Thank you so much for tuning in for the full hour. I certainly appreciate you and Andrew and everybody listening to this, but especially you, because you know what? You're awesome, you're beautiful, and you're important. Until next time, thank you and game on.